Hey everyone, Misaligned is back this week and we are back with a book club episode. As promised, we are talking about Girl in a Band by Kim Gordon. But first, I want to let you all know that today's show is brought to you by Vinyl Me Please. You can join their Record of the Month Club at joinvmp.com forward slash misaligned. That link will be in the show notes, podcast chapters, everywhere, so you guys don't have to memorize it. And Misaligned is also part of the Modern Vinyl family of podcasts. You can find all of the shows over at modern-vinyl.com. And I know Pilot Study is back right now, so check that out. They just dropped their Wet Hot American Summer 10 Years Later episode. So if anyone is a fan of that, check that out. But now we are going to dive into our book discussion. Megan, had you read this book before or was this also your first time reading it? This was my first time reading it, and it was awesome, and I would totally read it again. Actually, I might buy this later, because <laughs> I checked it out from my library. Yeah, that's what I did, too. And it's one of those reads where once you sit down and start reading it, it flies by, basically, especially when you have, you know, those short and sweet chapters. It's not like you were reading 30-page chapters on our life or anything like that, and there were images to go along with the various chapters. So, you know, that's always nice to see sort of someone's life, not only in the words in the book, but in pictures as well. Yeah. And of course, as I'm here casually flipping through this, it is interesting to me that it says here that page 277 serves as a continuation of the copyright page. It's just me being a small little uh, book dork, but that's kind of cool. (laughs) But I think that's all the credits for the photographs, so I'm not 100% sure. Okay. And I also really love the fact that Kim dedicated this to her daughter Coco with the sweetest and shortest inscription that says, For Coco, my North Star. Yeah. And before we dive into the meat of the book and everything, did you know just how many different things Kim Gordon had done either, you know, within the music scene or creatively even outside of the music scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, she is such a powerhouse. I had known more about some of the stuff she's done in the art world, which is really cool. And Without discussing the meat of the book, I kind of wish that this book went into a little bit more detail about her project much later in life. I should have marked this page. Why didn't I mark this page? Um, Where is it? Oh, there it is. With the group Body Slash Head. Okay. Like, I think we got a small little blurb about body slash head, and that was kind of lumped in right at the end. So it is kind of easy to miss it if you skim through endings of books, which I don't know why you would do that, but (laughs) people do. Yeah, and for me, I didn't know any of the art stuff she had done. I believe she also mentioned just happening to have interviewed Yoko Ono or something like that, too, like something just fell into our lap and I knew she wrote this book. So I knew she sort of had creative interests outside of just music. But, you know, because this book is titled Girl in a Band, it doesn't really give you any hints of what else it's going to be about without really, you know, sitting 
and reading through the entire book. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that she had all of these different kinds of things that she was doing, not only in the music industry, but just sort of in the entertainment and art world in general. Yes. And going back about that Yoko Ono thing, she actually did release an album with Yoko and Thurston Moore, and it is called Yoko Kim Thurston. It was released back in 2012, and it was a collaborative release with the three of them. And the songs on here are long. It's a six-song album, and the first song is nine minutes and 58 seconds, whereas the last song, Early in the Morning, is 14 minutes and 36 seconds. So it's very much an interesting artistic effort. And surprisingly, that 14-minute song was released as the first single for the album. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So despite all of that, it is a 60-minute record. (laughs) Now, if only Brand New could pull off something like that. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump into the meat of the book. And the first thing I want to talk about is sort of the format of the book. I already mentioned that it had short chapters and everything, but it's kind of sort of in chronological order. But in the beginning, you know, we sort of get this glimpse of, you know, a reunion show, end of the band sort of thing. And then it feels like, you know, after that, it somewhat goes in chronological order. But then you have the section with her brother, that is heavily focused on in early parts of the book. And it felt like that kind of jumped around a little bit because Kim was older when a lot of that stuff happened with her brother. So it felt like, you know, she just sort of wanted to keep the stuff with her brother all in one place, basically, instead of having it sort of just pop out throughout the book and it would kind of feel out of place that way. Yeah. That section of the book actually did make me sad to read about. I mean, if I go to page 51, and if you can hear plastic rippling in the background, I'm sorry. My library likes to put that plastic that makes all that noise on their books. So kind of detracts from the book flipping or book page flipping process that I love going through on these episodes. Um, But Kim talks about how she'd become a symbolic older sibling, a protector, which is the role that she still plays for Keller today, even though he had never played that role for her. What really, really struck me as interesting was the little graph that said, there wasn't a name back then for what was happening to him. My parents were from a generation where you tended to your own problems, one where psychotherapy was an indulgence. Now, remember, this is in the 60s and 70s. So this is going to be a little weird for people our age to kind of read about, but maybe to our parents, this would be something completely normal. So she goes on to say, they both came from families where you kept your problems to yourself and got on with life. If Keller was starting to act a little out of the ordinary, wasn't everyone trying to quote unquote find themselves in Southern California in the early 70s? Not to mention that psychiatry had a cuckoo's nest edge of paranoia about it. Like, that's something you wouldn't actually hear talked about today. Like, people will still talk about the problems with therapy and all that, but they are much more open about their mental health and actually getting the help and not dabbling in, you know, what people did in the 70s. 
yeah, and for that time period, it's sort of more understandable that they would take that position on it. And there are still people today who, you know, don't really believe in doctors and medicine, but it's a lot fewer than it was before all of these things were actually proven to help people. Yeah. And the fact that her parents' response was literally, this is just the way it is, that broke my heart. Because today, you see all these resources to get people help. And like, back then, it was just, well, we're going to accept it for what it is and not really try to do anything. Yeah, and I feel like back then, too, sometimes the conditions that they would be placed in and everything were even worse than sort of, you know, just staying at home, having someone watch over them. And, you know, when you go further back in time, it's obviously a lot more iffy on whether or not people should or shouldn't have done certain things because, you know, things have advanced so much in the even just, you know, the last decade or two, that it's a pretty sharp difference from, you know, when she's talking about this back in, you know, like the 70s and 80s. True. And I believe he is schizophrenic because her mom said that, uh, yes, her mom once told her that schizophrenia support groups for families were depressing. So, I don't know. As someone who has dealt with mental health issues in her family of this nature, I kind of get it. Like, I understand because for years we kind of accepted my grandma the way she was. Like, we cut off ties with her. But it was just what it was because this woman was also refusing help, which it sounds like Keller wasn't. He was essentially just given to the state as a ward to be like, here, do this with him. Right. And the first part of this book was very much so not having a whole lot to do with her music career or anything like that. There is, you know, this stretch where it's a lot about her growing up, her family, and, you know, this whole section really sort of sets up the tone of everything else that's to come and how she sort of approaches all of these different situations based on, you know, how she was raised and what she had to deal with before the music career and Sonic Youth were even a thing. Right. And Perhaps one of the things that really struck me as interesting with this is out in chapter 11, okay, which is on page 67. So you can definitely see that these are extremely short chapters. But Kim writes, sometimes I think we know on some level the person we're going to be in our life that if we pay attention, we can piece out that information. I find it strange when people don't know what they want to do in life. Because even when I was a young kid pushing around clay objects at the UCLA lab school, I knew I wanted to be an artist. Nothing else mattered. And this is where you actually start to see some direction that the book is heading from more of like her memoir and like early life to transitioning to her life truly as an artist and becoming the person who she is today. Yeah, definitely. And she is someone who seems to really know what she wants to do and sort of has this general idea of how she wants to accomplish that too and you see that with her music career the art gallery stuff and everything like that too and even with her brother it's like she had these ideas for sort of what would be best for him but ultimately you know it wasn't necessarily her decision to make and her parents handled it 
pretty differently than I think she would have had she been the one making the decisions and everything. Right. I do like how jumpy some of this is. So, you know, we go from this little chapter on being an artist and like the start of all of that to her talking about spending two years at Santa Monica College and then transferring to Toronto's York University and then talking about the music program and music department and how that really sparked something within her. But then she ends this chapter with Dan Graham came along. And then you turn the page and the start of the next chapter is 2009, where she was asked to appear alongside Thurston Moore, which, by the way, small note, there's no relation whatsoever, at least that I'm aware of. (laughs) But just one of those happenstance things. Um, But they were asked to appear at Sculpture Center in Long Island City, honoring Dan Graham. So, you know, while it may jump around a little, it is slightly linear because this is where it talks about his influence on her and how this was the start, like the beginning of one of the most relationships in her life. Right. Oh, actually. It says here at the end of this chapter, his passion for music was as strong as his interest in art and rock and roll often found its way into his subject matter. And he once told her he wished he could make art like could make art that was like a kink song so definitely some influence there on her musical stylings as well yeah and you can definitely tell when she's pulling influences from a lot of the different people she's crossed paths with and you know whether or not she's necessarily had these sort of lengthy relationships with them or not doesn't really seem to always factor in you know she mentions Yoko Ono and they did the album together that you mentioned and I believe she was talking about interviewing her for something and it sort of just fell in her lap so she has these opportunities come about for or with people she hasn't necessarily met yet and then those can easily lead to her working on something else exactly And this whole love of art and this whole wanting to be an artist since like the age of five, that's definitely one of the heavy themes of this book. And I love that so much. Like you very rarely actually get to read autobiographies or memoirs by musicians where this is just such a heavy, heavy influence on their lives. And especially during that time period, like in her formative years that was in my opinion some of the best time to actually start getting influenced by the art around you and by popular artists like Andy Warhol but that's also kind of like my art history nerd side coming out a little too so (laughs) small things for me I think what I enjoyed a lot about this book because you know you and I hadn't read it going into this. And so we didn't necessarily know what would come up. And it actually fit pretty well with our theme we have going here. And, you know, that there are instances in chapter 21, and later on in the book where she talks about specifically being a woman in the music industry. And, you know, 
our theme is hear our voices here. And I think she is someone who is definitely a voice that's been heard. So when she says things like, you know, the need to be a woman out in front never entered my mind at all until we signed with Geffen, that sort of puts a lot of things into perspective because, you know, it was something that she thought was totally fine, totally normal. You know, no one really had any problems with her being in a band and, you know, being around all the time until it became more noticeable when they got a record deal and it sort of, you know, wasn't the norm. Right. And in chapter 21, she says that when she began playing on stage, she was pretty self-conscious. She said she was just trying to hold her own with the bass guitar, hoping the strings wouldn't snap, that the audience would have a good experience. Then she goes on to say, I wasn't conscious of being a woman, and over the years, I can honestly say I almost never think of girliness unless I'm wearing high heels, and then I'm more likely to feel like a transvestite. Which is quite interesting, because to bring that into play, it makes me feel like there's some sort of gender fluidity going on. Because, sure, when women put on high heels, most of them feel fabulous. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say most, because I know people that don't like wearing heels and are forced to. Um, But when women wear heels, they often get more judged on their femininity. And for Kim to say that wearing heels made her feel like a transvestite, that's an interesting, interesting thing to say. Because... When you hear the word transvestite, most often the first image that pops into your head is Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay. And that, you know, that play on gender, being a male, presenting as female, or being a female and kind of like trying to find your own identity, I don't know. It's just an interesting quip. And I feel like I can relate less to this because I'm very... I'm very, very girly. I love wearing heels. So it's putting me into this position. It would be, it it would be weird because it would show that I don't, I don't know, don't quite fit in, but do, but play around. I'm going off on a weird tangent. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's the joy of misaligned is you come for our, uh, substance and come out with weird tangents you know i don't think anyone has complained so far so we are good on that but you know before we dive into the next quote that i have from chapter 21 because that sort of will take us on a pretty different path here why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about vinyl me please Yes. So, like we said, today's show is brought to you by Vinyl Me Please, where you can join their Record of the Month Club at joinvmp.com forward slash misaligned. They have recently announced their September Record of the Month, which is the Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die. Additionally, they are offering an add-on subscription featuring the first pressing of No Name's Telephone. In order to get this cool add-on subscription that actually focuses more on hip-hop and R&B music, you should already be a Vinyl Me Please member, and you can add it to your current subscription. I think that's pretty cool that they're branching out into that, and seeing that they've got the Notorious B.I.G. as their September record of the month is even cooler. Yeah. 
I believe their August record of the month was the 10th anniversary pressing of the Nationals Boxer. Okay. Which was also really cool. I have a few friends that picked up that one and they really love it. They definitely do a ton of great albums. And the fact that they're aware enough to realize that they can even do these other runs that you can add on and not necessarily everyone will be getting is a really cool thing they're doing too. And while I personally do not have the moolah to subscribe to a record subscription right now, this is something that I have definitely wanted to try out just because, you know, I think they do a really great job of curating everything too. And, you know, it's not super expensive. Like I feel like some record clubs can be because they probably either aren't as popular. So they're not pressing as many records to sort of bring that cost down or, you know, they are doing very, very specific things like lathe cuts or, you know, these more expensive options. So I think this is a really good club for people who just generally want to start building up a great music collection. This is true. And they have an awesome member store featuring some pretty cool things that everyone loves. I haven't looked at it recently, but I have seen tweets go out about some of their awesome releases. Yeah, definitely. So like Megan said, join vmp.com forward slash misaligned. And as I said at the top of the podcast, it'll be in the show notes. So don't worry about you know, memorizing that or anything, but we're going to dive back into the conversation now. And Megan, that second quote on in chapter 21 that I was talking about was the one where, you know, she writes, culturally, we don't allow women to be as free as they would like, because that is frightening. We either shun those women or deem them crazy. And, you know, this was something just, you know, when I read it, it sort of makes you pause for a moment. And you're like, yeah, that kind of actually really seems very true. (laughs) And, you know, there are plenty of women who have been able to break through and sort of rise to the ranks in the music industry and everything like that. But it's still very few and far between. And it's sort of one of those things that still gets this stigma from a lot of males in the music industry that you know it's still very much their club and they sort of don't want you know a ton of women running things or something like that which is you know for both you and I absolutely ridiculous (laughs) to hear people say that especially you know it's like it's 2017 come on people we can get past this well look at it this way to talk about something in more recent terms Kesha Mm-hmm. We've got Kesha with her song, I believe it's called Praying. Okay. Which is absolutely beautiful. And just each time I hear it, it makes me want to just shed tears. It's so beautifully written and it describes, you know, the recovery she's been going through in the wake of the Dr. Luke scandal. She wasn't fully free to express who she wanted to really be under his control. And. You know, there were points where she actually was possibly deemed crazy or making up this whole situation. And it's heartbreaking to hear things like that happening still in today's day and age. And actually, this the Kesha thing was more last year 
But now that she has released her new record, it's coming to light again. And this record, you know, despite still being part of Kimo Sabe Records, I believe, thus putting her a little bit under Dr. Luke's control, she's freer. And she can express herself in the way that she truly, truly wants to be expressed. Exactly. And she's going to come up again later in the podcast. Don't worry, guys. You know, Megan's, you know, giving you a little preview of recommendations this week. But, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, yes, Dr. Luke may still be indirectly involved. But even after just, you know, listening to the first single, it's like, you know how different the album is going to be and everything like that. And I think, you know, with Sonic Youth, they were already doing something that was pretty different. And, you know, Kim Gordon was not the first, you know, female to front a band by any means, but she definitely had a unique way of going about it. And you mentioned earlier being self-conscious and everything like that, but not really paying attention to the fact that she was a front woman for a band. And I think that just goes to show how for her, she really felt like she was sort of just another band member. And, you know, clearly the band didn't care, you know, (laughs) so, you know, there is that. But then you have a statement like this quote and you sort of realize that, you know, just because some people are fine with it, not everyone is going to be fine with anything all of the time. True. Very true. And she is actually one of the forerunners, frontrunners, probably thinking of two different words here. Anyway, (laughs) she's at the forefront of the pack, kind of, in talking about being part of a band, but also being a woman and kind of not really shying away from that. Like, I noticed that you have in here page 150 bringing up the question was it like to be in a girl in a band? And we still see instances of that today with females in the music industry. Like, oh, hey, you're a girl in a band. That's great. What's that like? You know, what's it like, you know, being with all the dudes, that sort of thing. It's definitely one of those questions, too, where you feel like it's mostly men asking it because, you know, I know you interview more bands in person and everything than I do. So for me, sometimes when I just see, you know, the names listed, I don't necessarily know who is going to answer my questions when I just email interview questions. So mm-hmm. That is sort of something I never really ask because, one, I feel it's completely unnecessary. And two, it's like, okay, well, if one of the dudes in the band is answering the questions, it's going to be totally irrelevant anyway. So it's one of those questions where obviously it's much easier to ask in person and she was asked it a lot. But the fact that she then follows it up by saying she never really thought about the answer, it it just goes to show what her mindset is like, you know, like, that's not really a concern to her. It's like, you know, she's in a band. And that's sort of the bottom line. That's true. And it's interesting to think about that, especially in today's terms. Because going back to the band interviewing thing, I have even sent out email interviews where I've talked with siblings in bands. And I will admit, I have asked a form of that question. 
maybe in the sense of oh so what's it like being in a band with your brother right and sharing the duties but not just straight up being so what's it like being the girl in the band yeah and I think the sibling dynamic too is a little different because I mean I don't have siblings so you would probably know better than I would you know if you were in a band with your brother there would be a certain kind of dynamic between you and him and then a different dynamic between you and the rest of the members of the band because you know you've lived with your brother for x amount of years and you know you guys are pretty much closer than you might be with any of the other band members so it's just that specifically is something that's definitely more interesting than just being like hey you know you're a girl in band what's that like it's like it's like being in a band you know (laughs) exactly and one of the more interesting things about sonic youth is that kim founded this with thurston moore we've talked about him earlier he is a key player in this book as well um solely because Kim and Thurston were once a couple. So then you kind of have to think about shifting the questions from, oh, what's it like being a girl in a band to, oh, what's it like being in a band with your significant other? Right. Like, how does that work out? And that's a little more insensitive, kind of. So she married. She married him in 1984. And 10 years later, they had a daughter. So her daughter, Coco Haley, was born on July 1st of 1994. So that puts her at 23 now. Yeah. Yeah. Doing my math right because that's (laughs) the same year my brother was born. Um, So it's kind of interesting when you see this connection between two people in a group, but then not having it be kind of the big focus of the group, really. Plus, what's interesting about that, too, is, you know, the fact that they ended up getting divorced and everything like that. So you sort of see this happening and then, you know, they have to get back together and, you know, play reunion shows and whatnot and sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say act like nothing happened, but when they're out on stage, you know, they have to focus and put on a show and sort of set that stuff aside for, you know, whatever their set time is, and then whether or not they go separate ways or something like that after the show is another thing. Right. And this is where page 241 comes into play, where Kim writes, even when you're in the public eye, you never understand how you come across to other people. Yeah, you never understand how you come across to other people. In this, she details a little bit more of her relationship with Thurston in the end years that ultimately led up to the band, you know, calling it a day. Because when they announced that they were separating, that was in, what, 2011? That's essentially the end of the band. But she writes after that, as long as I could remember, I'd been careful not to come across as the female half of a power couple. So she still was playing around with that idea of not fully expressing feminine ideals, like what we were talking about earlier, um, with how she just never really thinks about it. Right. She's just a person. And it's interesting because, yeah, Kim and Thurston were the power couple of the punk scene for years. Definitely. Like, their relationship is heavily documented 
And it's kind of sad how it all ended, really. Which I also have note in here where I say that the last few chapters really deal with that split. Um, not because I live for dirt on celebrity splits, but because of how the other woman came into the picture. So in some cases, when men have affairs with other women, the original woman in the picture tends to, you know, maybe slut shame a little or go into tirades like, oh, that bitch or something on that matter. Like they're full of anger. And yes, Kim was full of anger, but not once in here did I really read that she was just so angry that she had to resort to tactics like that. It was more that this woman, a book publisher, had kind of weaseled her way into their lives and was kind of noted as being the, quote, crazy woman. And sure, referring to people as crazy probably isn't the smartest thing in this day and age, but there was a lot of talk about how interesting it was how she just tried to get so close. Like she had had an affair with one of the other band members. Not Kim, but but the other woman, <laughs> obviously. Right. And then from there, you know, set her eyes on to, I guess, Kim and her husband. So Yeah, so there was definitely, you know, a pattern there. And I think someone even sort of warned her about it too. And, you know, she does leave out names or, you know, gives people some other names in this just for, you know, the sake of not outing them <laughs> and everything like However, that. However, to kind of throw some fuel to this fire, um, even if you Google Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, or like the end of their relationship, oh, you can definitely find out who said people were. Like, it is all over the internet. So it's kind of, it's really good. And I have a lot of respect for Kim not naming names and yeah. not having it be one of those like super tell-alls that we expect from reality stars. Yeah, you could definitely tell that she didn't want all of that attention to be focused on, you know, oh, it was this person and this person. And she just sort of wants to get her story out and she doesn't really want to smear anyone in the process and I think that's something that you know you could even say is very noble of her because considering what she went through you would think most women would probably just you know put the person's name out there and not care what any of the consequences were or anything like that but I think the fact that she's sort of trying to stick with the kind of person she's been the entire time is really great to see, you know, like in your section you mentioned there, she, she said it's not because I live for dirt on celebrity splits. So, you know, she's not trying to be a gossip magazine or anything like no. that. She's just like, you know, this is how I want to tell my story and I'm going to do it my way and not sort of, you know, follow any of these typical tropes you would find when talking about these kinds of things, especially in the internet age. True. And this all came to light in the early 2010 era, I guess you could say. Like late 2000s era, early 2010s. So it's still, you know, relatively recent for a lot of people. Yeah. And I also appreciate the way that she went about it because she has a daughter. And when kids are in the picture, 
that changes everything. Like if you're finding out about infidelity when your kid is a senior in high school and figuring out, you know, what to do, like college and all that, you don't want to add any more stress to them. And they're at the age where they can understand that people can be really, really petty and really, really awful. So you kind of don't want to make it just a public spectacle and bring the kid into it. You want to have it be kind of quiet and demure and not a circus. Like, I think if they didn't have a kid, things would be a little different in maybe how she chose to approach this. But at the same time, even if they didn't have a kid and she approached it this way, it would still be extremely respectable. Right. And her daughter is actually one of the last things I wanted to mention here because she obviously comes up a lot more later in the book. But, you know, she's the first to admit, like, you know, touring isn't necessarily great for a kid, but, you know, Coco kind of made the best of it. And, you know, they made the best of the situation in general. And she's upfront about, you know, she's not the best cook or, you know, she's not going to be your typical housewife. And mom, because, you know, she is this rock star, basically, and she's very upfront with that. And one of the moments I really enjoyed with the daughter and it was when the daughter has her own band and she doesn't even like tell anyone else who her parents are. And that Mm -hmm. really seems like something that like Kim just rubbed off on her because, you know, Kim never really felt like the type of person who was just going around flaunting everything and anything like that. So the fact that her own daughter is sort of just like, yeah, you're just my parents, you know, I think that was a really great thing to show towards the end of the book, too. Right. So this comes up in chapter 41 with an absolutely adorable baby photo. Um, I'm a sucker for photos of babies, so we'll, we'll just leave that be. But she opens this chapter with sometime in my late 30s, I'd begun looking at babies. Babies on the sidewalk, in strollers, on shoulders. The problem was I could never figure out the best time to start a family. Which is true. This goes back to, you know, you talking about, oh, she's in a band. When's the best time to really have a kid? And in a way, this kind of goes back to our discussion from the introductory episode to this season where I was talking about I'm with her. And how two of the three ladies in that band are with child. And it's like, how do you incorporate your music life with this whole, I'm going to grow life inside of me. How is this going to affect my life? That sort of thing. But then that also says she ends this chapter. Like this chapter 41 is literally just brief overview of her pregnancy how being pregnant made her nervous, um, how, like, she was filled with anxiety when Peter Buck's wife, Stephanie, asked if she wanted to hold one of the twins that she had just had. And she ends this with, having a baby also created a huge identity crisis inside of me. It didn't help that during press interviews, journalists always said, what's it like to be a rock and roll mom? Just as over the last decades, they couldn't help asking, what's it like to be a girl in the band? Um, And she goes on and kind of spins that with, I'm sure Thurston got the same question, but at least on the surface, it didn't appear to bother him as much. Like a lot of guys, he was the cool fun dad which was great for Coco in many ways. 
And then she goes on to compliment his parenting style, like how great of a parent he was to Coco, which is true. But then seeing that, oh, what's it like being a rock and roll mom question that immediately goes back to that, oh, what's it like to be a girl in a band? Yeah, it's like everything sort of comes full circle in this book, pretty much. You know, it sort of starts out not in the best of circumstances. And, you know, you go, she's going through the divorce and everything towards the end of the book. And it's just, you know, a really great way to sort of tie that all together within this book. And, you know, I think we've touched on everything I wanted to bring up for this. Is there anything we haven't hit on that you wanted to touch on before we give some final thoughts? I think I'm good over here. Like I've talked about a lot of the points I have in our Google Doc, pulled out some more because I love discussing the book when I actually have the book in my hands. Like, I think that's what makes this episode so much fun. (laughs) I had actually returned my copy already. So I took pictures of the pages that had the quotes that I pulled. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll pull a few things here and I'll be good to go. And I figured you would have your books. So, you know, it's not like we would be bookless during this episode. But going back to our mom thing, I was just casually flipping through on page 238. This is a pretty important thing to note in this discussion. She writes, since I became a mother, journalists always throw out the question, what's it like being a rock musician who's also a mom? It's a question I could never answer to my or anyone else's satisfaction without giving one of those, like any woman balancing a family and a job, answers. The most boring one I could think of, which only seems appropriate. The fact that she had to kind of play to the journalists and folks asking her about that is interesting that she's just like so sick of hearing that question thrown out at her that she's just like okay it's time for me to start giving the standard form answer yeah and I think a lot of people who are working moms will give that answer because you know to them it's not some sort of novelty you know (laughs) it's something they just do and it's interesting you know like you we said earlier that people are still bothering to ask these kinds of questions. True. Maybe we'll enter a day and age when that's not a standard question to ask pregnant women in bands. (laughs) Why can't it be, oh man, how awesome is it just being a woman and performing up there knowing that you're probably going to have like a musical baby or that you're just up there pushing through. Like, how awesome is that? Since I was so excited about this with the I'm with her crew. Or you could even ask questions, you know, like, how did you get started playing an instrument or something more productive than just, you know, what's it like being a woman in a band? It's like, no, like sort of how did you hone your craft and all these questions that you would ask any male in the music industry, basically. And it's just one of those things where I try to be very conscious of asking the same questions over and over and over again in interviews. So I'll, you know, go look at a band's bio and see what I can pull out from there, you know, like what I can find out about the band and specify questions like, you know, if a band is from a specific area, I will mention that specific area in the question or something like that. So it's interviewing female musicians or female in the music industry in general sort of definitely needs a little bit of a change here especially since you know she was still getting these questions fairly recently (laughs) 
Yeah, like the fact that she's constantly repeating these in this book, I feel like that subconsciously this was an underlying theme to be like, please, future generations, don't ask women this at all. Yeah. Well, that sort of wraps up everything we have on the book, except for what we would rate this. I believe I gave it a four out of five on Goodreads. That sounds right. And I really enjoyed it. So I just sort of wish, you know, I feel like it could have been a little longer at times. Like there were definitely sections, like you said, that you wanted to know a little more about in detail. So, you know, a four out of five is still, you know, a really good rating, at least in my opinion. But what would you rate this if you were rating it, Megan? Oh, yeah, I'd also give it a four out of five. Awesome. Pretty much for all the reasons you've listed. <laughs> so we are definitely very on the same page with this book. You know, no pun intended there, but you know, it works. So <laughs> hey. All right. Well, why don't you give us your recommendation for this week? All right. Last week was such a whirlwind of new music that it was awesome. I mean, we had brand new do their surprise drop of science fiction, which made it to number one on the Billboard charts which is awesome and just I'm so ecstatic. But that is not my recommendation. <laughs> I feel like this release got a little sh or like overshadowed by brand new's release. And that is The War on Drugs with a deeper understanding. Like, holy crap, it's good. I love it. My friends love it. A lot of us just can't stop talking about it. And I don't know. I kind of want to see them live, and I don't know why I haven't yet. Probably because they haven't come near me, or I just haven't been paying attention. But, like, please don't sleep on this album. It is great. In fact, I love this album so much that I waited to do my August playlist, and I actually put, do where is it, Strangest Thing on my playlist, where it is nestled between I'm With Her's Little Lies and Portugal The Man's Colors. Nice. So it sounds like I have some homework to do because I have not listened to this or the band in general. So, you know, there is yeah, that. Yeah, it's <laughs> been highly raved about across the board by, like, a lot of folks in the industry. And I believe they're from Philly. Oh, okay. I know Craig Manning so. wrote something on them for Chorus that you might be interested in checking out because, he, you know, from his stuff that he's done from for Modern Vinyl, you know, how great and lengthy and in-depth his posts can be and they're really entertaining reads so that's something yeah you might enjoy reading on the war on drugs and yeah they are from philly if you google the war on drugs just as a heads up not only are you going to get information about the band but you're also going to get stuff like how the war on drugs fueled the fentanyl crisis from the guardian not surprising you know that's not so, the best seo choice for band name yeah <laughs> So just to let you know, they're not fueling the fentanyl crisis. It's the <laughs> actual so-called war on drugs with this current heroin crisis. Yeah. And for my recommendation, you previewed it a little bit earlier when we were talking about Kesha. My recommendation is actually her new album, Rainbow. And, you know, I sat through and I listened to this and it was just amazing what she came up with and what freedom she had because you know while I have enjoyed her other albums and everything a lot actually this just felt so raw and so different from what she had been able to do because you know a lot of her previous songs were sort of 
the big pop studio hits and they really had that feel to them that you get when you're working with someone like Dr. Luke or Max Martin on, you know, pop albums and everything like that. So it was definitely part of that, you know, pop music making machine. And this just felt, I wouldn't say like a complete 180, because you definitely still have those more upbeat, poppier, you know, catchy songs and everything on this. So this gives you a good mix of all of the different things Kesha's able to do as an artist. And even though, you know, the flow might be a little weird because of that, it's still definitely worth listening to top to bottom. Speaking of Kesha, and speaking of me mentioning the VMAs, I think I mentioned the VMAs. Um, did you see her at the VMAs just looking like an absolute princess? I paid zero attention to the VMAs. I didn't even really know they were happening until they were already happening. <laughs> yeah, that's probably for the best of <laughs> this year. But her outfit was great. It was just this, like, fantastic tall thing. It was fluffy. She looks awesome and so much happier. Awesome. Oh, and with the VMAs, Kendrick Lamar killed it. And that's, you know, my thing on that. He set people on fire. So I should YouTube his performance and that's about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually... Pink had an amazing speech because she accepted the Video Vanguard Award this year. Oh, I did see a Given, piece of that yes, floating around. Yes. Ellen gave her that award. And of course, seeing pictures of Ellen and Chance the Rapper warmed my heart. But in a way, Pink's, epi er, Pink's episode, <laughs> Pink's speech is kind of relevant to our season because it is about empowerment as well. And how she was telling her daughter to not be afraid to be herself, essentially. And that it's okay if you look like a boy. Like that sort of thing. Yeah, that is the little piece that I caught. I think it was on Facebook or something. And you know how the video just autoplays without sound. Yeah. I caught part of it. I was like, oh, this is a thing that happened at those VMAs that I did not watch. Yeah, so. actually watching the whole thing is great. And I mean, her performance was also really good. And it is important to note that she showed up on the VMAs red carpet with her daughter and Carrie Hart. And the three of them are all wearing suits. Nice. Like, <laughs> really cool suits. So good on her for doing that. And good on her for continuing on the theme of empowerment and being yourself. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been another installment of our Hear Our Voices season. And we want to thank you all for tuning in. And as always, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.